Hello there. Uh, long time no see. Let's go over some UFO sightings during Prohibition. UFO lands in Cottonfield, Bethel, North Carolina, September 1920. Um, hmm. This incident took place in September of 1920 while the harvest was in full swing. On the cotton farms around Bethel in North Carolina, a small town on Highway 13, about 60 miles east of Raleigh. I have some relatives there. The eyewitness in the case kept the story to herself until 1991 when she told the story to her grandson, Gil Rodriguez. The principal eyewitness is identified as 14-year-old Nicara B. She, along with her family, were day laborers in North Carolina, and as such, the family worked from sunrise to sunset for the three months beginning in September, which is the busiest time of year for cotton harvesting. Nicara and her family walked methodically down the long rows of cotton plants, plucking the white bowls from the plants and stuffing them in their tote sacks. Although the earlier, or although the day of the UFO incident started off uneventfully, full of the usual tedium and back-breaking labor. It ended up as something altogether different. The events of that day would live on in her memory for the rest of her life. The encounter began early one afternoon while she and her relatives were picking high cotton, which is found atop the taller cotton plants. Suddenly, the family noticed a large metallic silver object flying across the sky over the cotton farm. Quote, it looked like two pie pans placed together lip to lip, she said in 1991. She also stated that the craft was larger than a typical automobile. She said the silvery UFO zigzagged across the sky and finally came to rest in the field in front of them. The startled farm workers watched the amazing sight, noticing that a door or portal on the ship was starting to open. Soon, two humanoid creatures appeared out of the ship's interior and moved down to the ground. She described the beings as little bald white men. They were about the size and stature of an 8 to 10 year old. She said they were the size of little boys, but their faces seemed older. As the creatures stood looking at her and her family, they pointed short sticks at them. What this gesture was meant to accomplish is unknown, but the sticks were obviously not weapons. I wonder if they were like the, uh, those silver rods or whatever aliens have. Uh, one of the strange beings then brought out a different type of tool that looked, quote, something like a shovel, began using it to dig and poke into the soil near his feet. Using the tool, he scooped out a sample of dirt and put it inside a bag that he was carrying. Finally, the creature picked up a small plant and also placed it in his bag. After the specimen collection was completed, the two humanoids once again pointed the odd sticks at her and her family and walked backwards into their ship, keeping the farm workers fully in their view at all times. Within moments, the UFO powered up and took off into the sky, resuming the zigzagging motion that they had observed earlier before it finally disappeared in the same direction from whence it had come. In telling the story to her grandson, she said that the family believed what happened, 
might have been some kind of U.S. government experiment. Quote, we all thought it had something to do with the government. The family members continued talking about the incident uh, for a little while after it happened, but then went back to work. In order to make their day's wages, they could not afford to take any more time away from their tasks. A search of U.S. Census data for 1920 did not find any entries for a Nicara B. However, it is important to note that many people, including migrant workers, minorities, and immigrants, were not counted in the census. It is also unknown if the initial B refers to her married name or her maiden name. Um, if she was 14 at the time of the incident, she would have been born in 1906 or 1907. And their search of the census found two Nicaras that were born in 1906, uh, one in New Mexico and one in Brooklyn. Um, hmm. In any case, this account provided not only a fascinating sight, sighting of a traditional flying saucer type UFO, but what sounded to be like gray, a, alien grays as well. Um, How have you guys been? Hope you're hanging in there going into October. So, yeah. Chapter 9 Contacting Mars, New York, New York, September 2nd, 1921. On the morning of September 2nd, 1921, residents of New York City awoke to a headline in the New York Tribune newspaper saying that one of the world's top scientists, Googly L. Mo Marsoni had very likely received intelligence signals from the planet Mars. The headline, quote, Marsoni believes he received wireless message from Mars, had a profound impact because he was well known as the inventor of radio and for his work on wireless tele telegraphy. Speaking at the Rotary Club of New York, the London manager of the Marsoni Wireless Telegraph Company J.C.H. Macbeth say that he believed that he had intercepted messages from Mars during recent atmospheric experiments with wireless on board his yacht Electra in the Mediterranean. According to the article, Marsoni had been unable to conceive any other explanation of the fact that during his experiments, he picked up magnetic wavelengths of 150,000 meters whereas the maximum length of wave produced in the world today is 14,000 meters. He told the newspaper that the signals from Mars could not have been caused by electrical disturbances because they had, quote, regularity. He also said the signals were not intelligible and were possibly in some type of code. He told the newspaper, the fact is, we don't know how far wireless rays will travel, is not at all impossible or, for that matter, improbable that some planet on which the same method we are using has been perfected may be trying to get into communication with us. We continually hear these high power taps delivered with such regularity that it completely dispels any suggestion of their being caused by ordinary electrical activities of the 
atmosphere. These we have learned to understand and gauge. The signals he is referring to are quite another sort. Um, he pointed out that hearing the signals did not equate to understanding them. There is, of course, the language barrier that interposes in our efforts to interpret messages from other planets. Still, the Germans were able in three weeks to decipher English code messages used in wartime, and we were equally successful in deciphering their codes. Could the signals received by him have been coming from wireless stations on Earth? He said absolutely not. It has been suggested that these signals might have come from some German or Russian wireless station, but he repeats that there is no station on the face of the globe that is capable of producing them. Also, by international agreement, every station and the lengths of the waves it is capable of producing are known. According to the tri Tribune, he had previously announced in January 1920 that mysterious signals had been received, which appeared to come from another planet, and that he was conducting further experiments in an effort to decipher them. The newspaper account concludes by saying, Prizes aggregating more than a quarter of a million dollars will be won by the scientist who first succeeds in establishing intelligible communication with another planet. The latest of these $20,000 is offered by the Paris Academy of Science. Um, hmm. Okay, here's a good one. Humanoids in robes. Page 90. Humanoids in robes. Mount Desert Island, Maine, autumn 1923. Author and UFO researcher Raymond E. Fowler told a story of a very unusual incident that happened to his father in 1923 while his dad was stationed at the U.S. Navy Radio Compass Station at Otter Cliffs on Mount Desert Island, Maine. Um... Using a tape recorder, he taped his father's story and later transcribed it for his book. The elder Fowler started his story by saying that he was 22 years old and was a radio man in charge of the naval station. His shift was from 4 p.m. to 4 a.m. Quote, One late autumn day, a violent electrical storm was in progress when he reached the station to relieve the daymen. He left for the main transatlantic station a quarter of a mile away, wishing me luck. I would need it, for static was terrific. The storm winds were near hurricane strength and had spread out over the North Atlantic shipping lanes. The ships were constantly called in for bearings. Although the exact date is not given, this may have occurred during one of several storms that affected the area in the autumn of 1923, including a strong offshore disturbance during the last week of October. At 11 p.m., the elder Fowler was responding to a request for bearings from the ocean liner SS George Washington when a violent lightning bolt hit the radio cable outside the naval station and seeking ground the strong electrical charge traveled into the building, striking him in his torso. 
quote, it lodged behind his solar plexus where it remained and revolved like a fiery sun inside of him. By that time, he should have been dead, he thought. What happened next was beyond belief. He saw a, quote, soft light move apparently from his body up through the roof and out into the night, moving towards what appeared to be a radiant star. Other rays of light seemed to come from him and expand about seven feet around him in all directions. Three distinct flashes of light unfolded into three majestic-looking smiling men in shining robes of light. Although they did not speak, his thoughts and theirs were in perfect attunement, making verbal speech unnecessary. His thoughts formed many questions concerning them, the light rays, the electronic fire inside of him, and what manner of star it was that projected such rays. And those three beings were fine-featured and had light, cream-textured complexions. Their eyes were so bright it was difficult to see their color, but he thought that they were blue. The brilliant aura surrounding them made it impossible for them to determine the color of their hair, for they wore strange velvety-looking hats that were like three tiers of rolls upon their heads. Like their robes, the headdresses were rich blue in color, they wore soft, doe-skin-like, form-fitting boots. The being to the left of Fowler pointed his finger at the fiery ball of light on his abdomen, and in a flash of light, it leaped into the being's hand. The humanoid then tossed it to the being next to him, and it tossed it to the third being in turn, who threw it into the copper mesh screening of the station. The fiery ball went up in a shower of sparks and disappeared. All three men then smiled, bowed again, and disappeared in three flashes of light. According to Fowler, this incident troubled his father for the rest of his life. This experience was etched in Dad's memory, and each time he told it to us, from childhood to adulthood, the details never varied, according to Fowler. Uh... UFO Light Show, Benton, Illinois, 1923. In 1923, the children of a family living in Benton, Illinois, were out playing in their front yard after supper when they had an incredible UFO encounter with an object that was equipped with a number of interesting multicolored lights. Several years after the event, one of the eyewitnesses told the tale. One evening after supper, we went out in front of our house to play when we noticed something like a small cloud in the cloudless sky. It seemed unusual that the approaching cloud was the only feature of an otherwise perfectly clear evening sky, but even more unusual was the fact that the strange cloud was drawing closer by the minute. Noticing that the cloud was approaching, the witness told the other children there's something in the sky. The object was advancing from the north and was not very high in the sky. It began to slow down as it approached the area near where the children were playing. Having slowed down and descended even further, the object flew past the fairground and near a school. It slowed down like a top and flew low around the old fairground. It then came back by the Grant School west to the electrical poles, stopping before crossing the railroad tracks. 
The object was now as low as the nearby treetops, and suddenly the children saw a row of multicolored lights come on near the bottom of the craft. The lights came on around the bottom edge, red, blue, green, and beige. The beige light or spotlight was very bright. They watched the UFO light show in fascination for a few minutes. Then suddenly the main light on the ship was turned off and the object seemed to move closer to a nearby line of electrical poles. What happened next was quite unexpected. The object rose up high in the sky, apparently ready to depart the area, but then began descending slowly until it landed just beyond the railroad tracks. And as it was about to land, the bottom of the craft moved and four floodlights suddenly turned on, causing a pillar of light. He looked away for a minute, and when he looked back at it, it was gone. The story was not made public for many years, according to the witness. Quote, it was years before I saw a picture of a UFO. Then I saw the mystery object I had seen was a UFO. Um, yeah. So that was four stories of various alien and UFO-related sightings for Prohibition. I have a couple more, but I'll say that for another time. Thanks for listening. I hope you guys have a good week. Peace out.